Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Cellicopter. Tired of listings that go nowhere? Exhausted by tire kickers who waste your time? Don't sell your helicopter alone. Cellicopter handles the entire process from start to finish. So, if your helicopter is sat too long, waiting for a buyer, contact the team at Cellicopter today for your complimentary market valuation. Call 1-855-CELLICOPTER, 1-855-735-5226, or email sales at cellicopter.com. Cellicopter. List it. Sell it. Done. Hello and welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. This is Halsey Scheider and I am so excited today. Today is episode three and first and foremost, thank you to everyone with the positive feedback that we've received from our previous two episodes. We're feeling the love. I was expecting to get trolled a little bit, uh, but so far the trolling has been at a minimum. So I appreciate all the good vibes and we're excited and I am equally excited to have my very good friend uh from flight school here today mr yo-yo rose yo-yo what's happening man hey holy man good to see you again man it is good to see you how many years do you think it's been since we've actually like seen each other let's see flight school was in 2008 um 2009 and then that's pretty much right after that's when i left portland so it's it's been what 12 years 11, that 12, is something like that. crazy. Well, it seems like yesterday, and you yeah. you've always been one of my favorite people. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I remember meeting you actually. I think I was I think I was working line service still for Hillsborough Aviation at the time. Yes. And I remember I was yep. fueling, and I went out to the center tie down, and there was this guy with like this long blonde hair, looked super cool. And I was like, man, who is this guy? And that was like my MO back in the day. I would like fuel the helicopters and just like talk everyone's ear off. Uh, probably to the lack, oh, yeah. you know, probably not doing great at my job because I was talking so much. But I think I met you at the center tie down. I don't know if you recall that, <laughs> but I, I feel like I remember it. It's crazy. So 12 years, uh, what have you been doing since? Where, where are you at currently? I'm currently uh, the chief pilot and kind of running the company here at uh, Mountain Power Construction and um, our aviation company is called MP Aviation. Um, and yeah, we got a Blackhawk and a 530. Um, 530 we mainly use for our wire work and then the Blackhawk for the heavy lift work. And then um, besides our own in-house work, we're basically a construction company, union contractor specializing in power line construction. And um, so we, we bought these helicopters just to do our in-house work. That was the main idea. And then once we got into the Blackhawk, um, we we said like there's a potential to um, also make a lot of money outside of our own um, work and just basically do fire work, so so fight fires with it. And um, yeah, here we are. Like we um, we've been operating the 530 for a couple of years now, 
and the Blackhawk since um, so this year is going to be the second year for us to operate the Blackhawk and um, yeah we had a fantastic season last year um, fighting fires down in California and then doing a lot of construction work with it and yeah that's that's kind of where I'm at the moment I'm just getting ready to to um, put the Blackhawk back together we did a PMI 1 and 2 this winter which are major inspections put bigger engines in it so we put the 701 Delta engines in it which gives us uh, 2,000 horsepower per site, so 4,000 horsepower total. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, the Blackhawk, I've been flying the Blackhawk for four or five years now. It's a fantastic aircraft, a fantastic platform, and, um, and um, yeah, I'm interested to see what's happening in the future with those aircraft. Yeah, I mean, being a civilian guy, personally, I mean, I never dreamt that I would have any type of potential to fly Blackhawk. Yep. And now owning an aircraft brokerage, I probably still don't have any potential unless I have really good friends like you. But it being in restricted category, I don't even know if I can hitch a ride. That's something that that's maybe something that we can uh, you can educate us on a little bit. So, uh, you know, you're flying utility flying fire, doing all these cool things with the Blackhawk. So I'm so excited to learn all about that. But obviously between when I saw you last and kind of now to all this crazy cool stuff that you're doing, you've had to do quite a bit of flying in between to kind of get to that. So uh, I met you in flight school and at that time, I guess, did, did you instruct at Hillsboro or did you instruct somewhere else? No, I never instructed at Hillsboro and um, I was... I was like at Tillsboro only for a short amount of time. I didn't really like that school a whole lot. And um, so I went to, to leading edge aviation pretty quick after I started Tillsboro and did most of my training there up in Bent and down in, in Salem. They bought that oh, uh, yeah. location from uh, Silver State down there. And yeah. so that's where I did most of my training. And then um, flight instruction wise, like um, I, I kind of got lucky, if you want to call it that way, um, for, for the most part. I only did 400, 500 hours, something like that, of, of flight instruction. And that was for a um, company over in North Carolina. So I moved to North Carolina for two years and um, flew an R44 there and uh, taught three guys. Like they, they were um, like two brothers and, and one of uh, um, the guys' son. Um, they had a crop dusting business and they bought that R44 and just basically wanted to learn how to fly a helicopter, their own helicopter that they bought. And um, so I taught them how to fly and then they asked me after, after they all got the commercial uh, add-on rating, if if I wanted to stay around and, and do some spraying for them. So I stuck around and sprayed there a little bit for about two years. That's so funny. I love hearing kind of how everyone gets yeah. to that point or starts building their hours. I mean, there's really that traditional path where you, you know, you put the tan flight suit on and you're Mr. Cool Kid at the campus that you learned at and you're the CFI for a thousand <laughs> hours. Um, I have friends that went off and they flew tours right away. A lot of them actually, I think, in North Carolina and Florida. And then you find two dudes mm -hmm. in North Carolina that want to learn how to fly a helicopter and you teach them and then you start crop dusting essentially that's pretty wild yeah just different approach but it worked out good for me and so I, I was just um crop dusting there for two years and um mainly in helicopters i also had um basically while i was in flight school i got all my fixing ratings at the same time and um so i was i was spraying a little bit in the fixed wing aircraft um but basically just for the fun of it but uh, mainly helicopters and then um after after that um i i applied for a job with the company Air2. Um, they both got bought out by Powerline Services and flying 500s and do, doing Powerline work. And um, that's how I got into this, this line of work. And that's been... Wow. So, I mean, you really progress kind of quickly. Yeah. No, I was... I mean, it's, it's kind of how this industry works, what I figured out. Like, you just got to ask the right person the right question in the right moment and get lucky on top of that. So, <laughs> um, 
it's uh, um, then I was just lucky enough that that they had a big inspection job where basically you don't really have to do any long line work or anything. Um, just basically fly fly along power lines and inspect them. And um, that's how I got into power line work and into utility work. And then um, I was flying um, eight nine hundred hours, a thousand hours, maybe a little more per year um, in five hundreds over there. And then they trained me on on long lining pretty quick. And then that's just how I got eased into into this and. Um, that's basically all I've been been doing ever since. Just power line work, long line work, and just precision long line work. Yeah. And then, yeah. That's amazing. And when you started prior to the utility stuff and doing the long lining and doing the spray work, were you primarily spraying fields like corn, wheat, things like that, or is it like all sorts of like forestry, anything like that, or, or just doing fields? They used the helicopters a lot for forestry stuff, um, some aquatic stuff. Um, like around water, just to to kill some noxious weed, weeds around there. Um, but then they took the helicopters out to to Illinois and Iowa for the corn run, what they call it every summer, just spraying fungicides up there on yep. corn. So there was a good bit of row crop that we sprayed, um, but but for the most part it was forestry and, and aquatic stuff. And was that all self-taught? I mean, did you just kind of like, all right, I'm going to just teach myself how to do this? Or did these guys have some experience? Or did you have other experience on the fixed wing side that you just kind of translate it back into the helicopter? They gave me some some ideas um, from from the fixed wing side, but um, mainly it was kind of learning by doing. Um, before I went to North Carolina, I was hanging out at a place um, just outside Portland for a little bit and doing some ferry flights for a guy up there in jet rangers um and um then he he showed me a little bit how to do act turns and and what to do around spraying so i had a little bit of an idea um but otherwise it was for the most part just kind of learning by doing and and i guess i was lucky enough not to kill myself looking back it's like probably not the smartest way to do it but <laughs> i guess it worked out yeah <laughs> yeah no i'm glad you're all right i mean i guess i've always kind of lived by a motto uh <laughs> sometimes in life you have to fake it till you make it right so uh, you know you probably had enough skill to uh to get it done but yeah certainly you know crazy a crazy operation to be thrusted in as a lower time pilot just to kind of say hey go and figure it out but oh, yeah. what a do you, do you think that that helped yeah. i mean because now you're flying you know utility and I, I really want to hear a lot about that because that's like might as well be a different life for me i like i i call that blue collar flying yeah. and i've the only flying i've done is like this silly white <laughs> collar like you know i could probably drink my coffee with the autopilots on you know it's like no better than really flying an airplane but it has its purpose so do you think that doing the crop dusting and things like that helped you kind of transition into that utility role a little bit easier? Mm, not really. It's it's just a way different flying. I mean, it's it's like the, the utility flying I'm doing now, like just basically hanging out the door and looking down and on the hook or, or the load and, and placing that where it needs to go um, is, is, is one thing that, that I'm, I'm pretty good at. Um, like if you would stick me in 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 a EC145 and have me fly an IFR approach, like we'd probably be upside down after two seconds and like crash after another five. So <laughs> it's it's just a way different world. And um, a, a good friend of mine actually that that's why I came up with that. A good friend of mine is is flying EMS down in San Diego and he flies an EC145 and does like the single pilot IFR stuff. And um, he actually flew this last summer with me as a co-pilot for a couple of days in the Blackhawk fighting fires. And um, cool. 
he was like, holy cow, like you guys, like it's, it's completely different. It's like, yeah, it, it, there's, there's so many different things in helicopters. So just because you're good at one doesn't mean like you can't do anything else. So, so um, like, like if you put, put him, like he's, he's awesome in what he does. Like he flies like those, those IFR approaches, single pilot IFR, no problem. He doesn't even think about it. He just does it. Um, he obviously has the right equipment for it too. Like if you would put him in, in a left seat in a Blackhawk with a, with a 150 foot long line on him, like he would probably have that long line wrapped around the helicopter like after 10 seconds. So it's, it's just way different. You, you can't really compare it. Yeah, you fly a helicopter, but that's about the only, only um, 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 commonality. Uh, what do you call it? Like the only commonality. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's really the cool thing about helicopters too. Like for me personally, I started flying airplanes yeah. in high school and I was like, all right, this is cool. But then I would kind of see the different helicopters fly around Oregon, where I grew up in Oregon. So, you know, having all of Hillsboro stuff, Columbia, you know, as a little kid going to the pumpkin patch and across the yeah. street was the oh, yeah. Columbia birds, you know, so like, I just oh, yeah. always felt like, oh my goodness, like there has to be, there's so many different options in the helicopter world. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to it. Now, I would say that there's some give and takes, right? I would say that some, um, depending on your family situation, depending on what you want to do, you know, sometimes you have to kind of make a, a choice of path. You know, hey, I'm going to go this way because I want to do this, or I'm going to go that way to do this. And so that's what I think is really cool about helicopters. And for me, I love, you know, the reason why I started the podcast is to be able to kind of learn more about that other industry. I mean, it's a whole different world, right? They both, we both have spinny things up here, right. but like you said, it stops there. So getting yep. into the utility, you said kind of your first experience, you were just kind of doing uh, line patrol or, or things like that, kind of just flying over the lines. Yeah. Just doing power line patrol um, on a big inspection job um, that that company had up in Michigan. And um, so I was out there just flying along power lines, hovering right next to every pole. And then the linemen in the back, they were looking at the poles, like seeing if there's anything wrong. If there was, just taking photos of it and writing it down and move on to the next. And um, so it, it helped out getting into this business because you obviously like learn the lingo pretty quick. Like you, you kind of like learn the terminology, like what things are called on the power lines, which you actually need later in the construction world. Like somebody like on the radio calls you like, hey, bring me that set of bells. And like you think like, what is he talking about? But then you learn like, it's, well, he means a set of insulators. So um, it, it's just this, this lingo, which, which helps like in those inspection jobs uh, to, to kind of like ease yourself and somebody into, into this kind of work. And were you doing anything like you see on like TV or YouTube where it's like, you know, pulling right up to the line and people actually getting off onto the line? Or was this just coming up to the power pole, mm -hmm. inspecting the pole as as a whole and then moving on? Or were you dropping people off? No, it, like at first we only moved, uh, flew by the pole, like we'd never touched the line. But I mean, obviously afterwards, like, um, like I said, I've been doing this line of work for, for 10 years. Um, now, like, yeah, I've done a lot of hot work. Like we actually, like you wear the hot suit, like the 70% uh, Nomex sweat and the 25% stainless steel. And you actually get onto the energized line and you drop people off on the line or, or they just change uh, spacers, like those things that hold the bundle. Like if you have a wire bundle, like there's like two or three wires, like per face, they have those spacers in between. So the wires don't touch each other, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. like they got to change, be changed out every once in a while. And then like they do that while they, while the line is energized and you just fly up to it and um yeah do it it's it's so it it really like obviously that's nothing you would do like in the very beginning like it's it's all like a learning process right and um 
but yeah, no, I've done done tons and tons of of that kind of stuff too, like hanging that's marker really balls. That's really cool. Which I think hanging those marker balls, like that's probably the most difficult thing you can probably do in a helicopter, in my point of view. Like if you get up in a big span, like there's like a like some of those spans, like crossing the Mississippi River down in Louisiana or something, like they're a mile wide, and um, like you're five, six hundred feet up in the air. There's no no reference to to the ground or anything. There's moving water underneath you, and you move the wire like for twenty, thirty feet before you realize you're actually moving, and then um, but you're right on the wire, and obviously like you gotta be. It's it's a pretty gnarly situation you could get yourself into. So it's it's just it's just one of those things like that that you just kind of learn and you have somebody show you how to do. And you obviously wouldn't hang the first marker ball in a span like that. You would just go right next to a tower where you have a reference where the wire is fairly steady. So it's it's all like kind of doing one step at a time and, and learning it, yeah. Yeah, kind of baby stepping into it. And, you know, you would have to, I would have to imagine yeah. any time that you're in that wire environment, whether you're doing something that is perceived as, you know, more simple or easier. I mean, it's all actually very dangerous, not dangerous, but I mean, I would say that the level of danger definitely goes up when you're flying in that environment, no matter what you're doing. I 100% agree. I mean, think about it. Like the first thing they told you in flight school is like, don't fly near near power line. And then like you start working as industry and what's the first thing you're going to do? <laughs> you fly right up to a power <laughs> Go line. Go fly wires. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely um, some, some danger or danger factors involved. Um, but it's just a matter of how you handle it. And um, I would never say like, I'm perfect. I've, I know it all. Like I, I, like my personal opinion is like, I learn every day. And it, that's what I do. Like every time I'm going flying, I'm pushing 10,000 hours now. I still like fly and I learn every day I'm flying. And that's always something new. And it's always something new to be learned. And um, you always got to watch out. And that's the nice thing about this parallel work. It's not production work. There's no rush. Like you just take your time. You really like, if you want to do another reconnaissance, you like circle around where you got to go into, like you just do it. Like there's no, no big deal. There's no hurt feelings. And um, I think the, the most important goal um, for every day of work is, is not to accomplish the work. The most important goal is to like go with everybody on the crew in the evening and drink a beer. Like have the helicopter in a hangar on the ramp tied down in one piece ideally and you go and drink a beer. That's 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 the first and yeah, I mean, most important goal for every day at work. That's the mission. And for some of our listeners out there that might be just getting into helicopter aviation or you just got your CFI ticket, I mean, I cannot tell you the value that Yo-Yo just said. I mean, I, I think that everyone should listen and hear what you just talked about. You're a guy that has 10,000 hours flying complex <laughs> missions, arguably the most complex missions that you can on the civilian side of the of of helicopter industry and you are still taking your time you're going out there with the mentality every day that you want to learn something and you're not pushing limits and you've never lost sight and i've always told people that like at the end of the day the mission is not what's right in front of you the mission is to park the helicopter like you said hopefully in one piece at the end of the day and go home to your family go home drink a beer and I think that it's easy specifically for young pilots to feel like there's this sense of like, you know, even basic stuff like uh, doing a go around per se, like, oh, I'm not going to do a go around. Like, I don't, I'm just going to force this approach in. And before you know it, you have a tailwind and you, you know, you're sinking and boom, you made a bad decision because you just kept going. You weren't listening to the helicopter. You let your ego kind of inter interface there. So I think that uh, if, if you are out there and you're listening and you're newer, I love what Yo-Yo said there, and I mean, they say that you're an expert at 10,000 hours, Yo-Yo. So you're you're really approaching this expert level of no. what you've done. I mean, you can't 
go higher, right? I mean, you can always continue to learn, like you said, but for you to say that, no. uh, I really appreciate you say, I really appreciate you saying that because I think, unfortunately, we, we do work within an industry of some macho-ness, some, you know, hey, I have to get the job done, that get, oh, yeah. get the job done-itis, get home-itis. So uh, thank you for saying that. And it's true. I mean, every day that you're flying, you should be going out there and learning. So you start doing kind of the, the pole work. Um, I, I, I say like the basic, just so I'm not, just so you know, like I'm thinking like I probably can't even do that. So when I'm right. saying basic, basic for that, for that, I guess, world. <laughs> now, something that I've seen on your Facebook before, and this must have been a few years ago or, or maybe even a little more current. I feel like you were pulling the wire with the helicopter, like you're stringing wire. Oh, yeah. Did I, am I making yeah. that up? No. No, that's for for new power lines. When you build a new power line, you got to get the wire up somehow, right? That's that's another thing they tell you in flight school, right? Don't t uh, don't tie your helicopter to the ground, and then you like tie a long rope just across the the, the planet and like put it um, in the travelers, what they call like those dollies that are um, on the on the insulators. And um, yeah, I mean that's how the wire is getting up. I mean um, sometimes it's, if it's flat enough, they can drive it out with a pickup truck and just like then move it up with a with a crane truck. But usually we just fly it in. So um, on the on the 500, which is definitely the most common helicopter that's being used for power line construction and this wire work, uh, pulling wire, um, as a side pull kit is what it's called. Um, so on the side, basically in the same plane with a hook, with a belly hook, there's there's a, an attachment point on the side, and um, that's where you just put the belly hook on. So it's on the side, and then you just attach the rope to it. it has a swivel on it, so it, it can spin. And um, yeah, you just pull the rope, and you have somebody on the on a rope puller, and that's operating the brake so that big drum which with all the rope on it doesn't like just free spin and then gets gets um basically turned into a giant mess like a fishing reel when you let go of it when you cast it <clears throat> um so so you, you're in contact and radio contact with that with that person but you just can basically go from tower to tower and um you just pull in pull in the rope and then that rope is being used afterwards to pull in what they call a hard line so they pull in a big steel wire, and then with that big steel wire, they pull in the actual face. And um, it depends on the wire size. Like sometimes if, if it's a smaller wire, like we've pulled the wire direct, if it was just like a really, really small wire for a smaller power line, we pulled the wire direct, it's no problem. Um, so it always depends. But yeah, no, you, you pull the wire in with a helicopter. I, I just think that is the craziest thing. I, uh, I, I've seen it on your Facebook, and then I've seen other, you know, other videos of that and for i don't know why but i'm just like that kind of blows oh, yeah. my mind um i just feel like that would be um i mean to me that's like the pinnacle of like when you're when you're a little kid you want to be a helicopter pilot like you're you're looking up at this guy flying a 500 like the you know the sports car of all helicopters pulling a line like i just oh, yeah. i don't think it gets more quintessential <laughs> yeah. than that yeah no it's it's fun i mean you you um yeah, the 500, like you said, it's definitely the sports car of, of helicopters. And um, then you get the D and the E model. They have the C20 engine, um, which which are, they are fun to fly in. And um, you get the 530, which has the C30 engine, so you have 650 horsepower to play with. It's D-rated, but still, I mean, that, that helicopter is just a 500 on steroids, and um, mainly for high-end hot performance, high-altitude performance. But um, no, they are still fun to fly. I mean, yeah, they are definitely the, the Lamborghini of of helicopters yeah yeah no i sadly enough i i have about one hour in a 500 and it was like 25 hours into my flight mm. training so i really couldn't even appreciate oh, well. it so 
I got Yeah. I have a we actually have a client right now that's looking at buying a a 500 and I'm going to kind of position myself in like hey I, I'm going to come up and you know let's do all the test flying together you know so I hopefully go get some uh some sick Heck yeah. sick time with Sean and and then, uh, maybe even ferry the aircraft back cuz it's like I've been in the industry now for you know 10 plus years and I haven't flown a 500 yeah. really so that's like disgusting to me. I need to get that changed. <laughs> yeah, no, they 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 they're pretty fun to fly and they they're good good aircraft. Yeah, so. I mean it's like the quintessential bird, the Magnum PI, of course, right? So yeah. so you've talked about uh, you know going into the mentality of learning every day. Um, have you had any moments yeah. within your career, whether it's on the utility side or the crop dusting side, that uh, you were like, oh god, that was close, or hey, that's kind of scary that that happened. Hey, I got to learn from that. I'm not going to let that happen again. What are some things that you've learned within uh, this this vast amount of experience that you have that you think have would be worth talking about for others? Um, yeah, I mean, like, like things always happen when you expect them the least, um, for sure. Um, that, that's what I learned uh, in two instances that I can think of right right off the get go right now, and uh, those were two engine failures that I had. Um, or one was like a full on engine failure. Um, in an MD600 that I was flying <clears throat> um, with a single engine helicopter, an engine failure, and that is obviously not a good thing to have. Um, and um, that was actually last year. Um, I, I came in the landing, I had a 60 foot long line on me, and um, I just put the hook on the ground and lowered the collective to start a descent to land. And at that moment, I just heard the RPM just like decrease, and I was like, oh shit. So um, I just without really thinking about it, just like looked in front of me and the classical thing happened. The helicopter yacht 90 degrees by the time I realized what was going on. And I did a hover order from 60 feet. And um, I somehow managed to keep the helicopter upright, which I, I guess I used up all of my luck for that day. I bought a lottery ticket, but didn't win anything. So <laughs> there was no more luck left. But um, so um, the helicopter did its job. I mean, the airframe, the, the skids were bent pretty good. Uh, the boom fairing uh, was, was cracked out pretty good. Um, if you look at the helicopter from, from photos or from afterwards, like it wasn't really that badly damaged, but then the internal damage in the helicopter was, was enough for the insurance to total it. But um, then I was like, afterwards, I, I sat on the ground, or I saw the trees in front of me rushing up and just like yanked up on the collective in the last moment to cushion the landing as much as I could. And um, then I sat on the ground and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm unhurt. And um, wow. then I... Um, rolled the throttle off and um, then shut it off. And it was idling at like a super, super low RPM, like way below idle. And um, then I, I shut it off and the engine came basically to an instant halt. Um, the engine was still running, but it was like kind of as a, well, on a weird RPM. And I'll tell you here in a second, like what I think happened afterwards. And still under investigation with the NTSB and, and Rolls-Royce, they're kind of fighting each other a little bit there. But, um, <clears throat> I got out of the helicopter and looked around. And I was like, hmm, well, today was my lucky day, I guess. And, uh, but what was good, actually, like, I was, like, right in that process, I was teaching a friend of mine how to fly helicopters in a Schweitzer. So um, I was actually pretty current in, in doing all the rotations, hover order, hover rotations, and all kinds of um, emergency procedures. So <laughs> I guess it was good timing that I was just in the process of teaching my friend how to fly, and um, which, which probably worked out, too. But... Um, yeah, so that was that was definitely one big scare, and um, like I said, I mean, like it, it, like that was about the least like expected thing to happen in that moment. I mean, like I've done like thousands and thousands of times. You just come back to the to the uh, LV, 
you put your hook in the ground and then you just land and um, you wouldn't expect the engine to to just kind of quit right there but well it happens. it's murphy's law right it's like you know it's always going to happen kind of at the worst time right like you're 60 feet out of ground effect like yeah of course your engine's going to oh, yeah. die there um that's crazy i had no idea actually i mean i know that we had kind of talked that you had some uh, I didn't realize like a full-on engine failure at 60 feet. Uh, glad you're okay. Yeah, that's, what, what actually that's pretty crazy. So, I mean, I feel yeah, like me too. <laughs> I think that some of our connectivity might be a little off here. So I think we might step on each other a little bit. So I'm apologizing for that. But what I was saying was no problem, yeah. is with that, with that helicopter specifically, what's the inertia like in that rotor system? It's actually pretty good. I mean, um, you have, it's the same rotor system like we have in the 500 um, that, that there was in the 600, same blades. Um, obviously, just one more in the 600 and in the 500, there's five blades in the 606. Um, but it's, it's actually a good bit of inertia in there. It's not nearly as much as you would have in a Huey or, or um, um, like, I don't have a ton of Jet Ranger time, but like those helicopters, I remember, they have a ton of inertia. Um, I have a lot of time in Hueys, and, and I mean, yeah, they have inertia for days. Um, it's not as much, but it's it's a good bit of inertia in those in those rotor systems, even though the blades are really little. But um, yeah, no, they're, they're pretty solid, pretty stout. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that you were able to, you know, from 60 feet, stay upright. And I mean, how is your back? I mean, your back is fine. Any any injuries yeah, or anything? No, it's after like that? I, I walked away without a scratch. Nope. No, I walked away without a scratch. And then everybody I talked to is, is actually like, holy cow, how did he pull that out? And I was like, I don't know. I just like did a hover auto. I just like, I literally like, like I, I looked obviously down and um, when I heard the RPM like go south, I, I took my head inside the cockpit, looked outside the window and just like thought hover auto. That's literally what went through my mind. And then like, I just saw the trees rush up in front of me and I just like ganked up on the collective and did as much as, as the cushion as the Still could do, I guess, at that point, and um, yeah, I mean, what what I can tell, That's like, I mean, amazing. by the time you realize what's going on, like half of the the thing happened already, so it happened so quick. Yeah, and um, yeah, but like, I, I guess I was just like super, super lucky, and um, then at the same time, just like I, I definitely would say that it really helped a lot that I was literally like for the few a uh, few weeks prior training my buddy how to fly helicopters and did a lot of hover autos obviously not from 60 feet but from like two or three feet <laughs> but um sure. so that, <laughs> a little, that I did a lot a of flight different. training with him and, and helped, right but still i mean like it's it's it that definitely helped like i, I will 100 percent say that and um yeah well, it's really cool too because i've always thought one of the uniqueness of the helicopter as well and and again not not uh poo-pooing on airplanes uh, and so if you're an airplane guy or gal out there, don't hate on me for this, but I think that some of the emergencies <laughs> or most emergencies in a helicopter require immediate action. You know, you don't, you don't have time to pull out your checklist and say, okay, the right engine's on fire. Okay. Shut it down. Do, you know, you don't have that. It's like the engine just stopped at 60 feet. You're strictly relying on this muscle memory and this training that you've been doing. And essentially, you know, that's why we train, right? We train to practice for that, that day when your engine quits at 60 feet. And so it's really cool yeah. to hear that even, even again, it's good that you were flying with your buddy and you had some recency of training, but I'm still, I'm still guessing, even if that wasn't the case, it's just so ingrained during flight training of, you know, how to do a hover auto, how to do an auto rotation, oh, you yeah. know, 
yanking that up. I mean, I can only imagine. Did you pull the collective to the lever? I, I'm sure that was the most damaged part, right? Because you pulled it so hard that you just pulled the whole collective off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't bend the collective, no, but I definitely pulled it to the stop, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'm, I'm super glad you're all right. That's, uh, and what a, what a not Me a too. cool story, but what a, uh, for, for our listeners out there, it's, it's, I think it gives me a little comfort to know that if you set yourself up in the position to succeed, then you can have a positive outcome, even if something is not necessarily going your way. Because I hate to say it, it's not necessarily if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. If you're flying for 10,000 hours, you're going to have some you know, little incidents or things along the way. And uh, you know, it sounds like you've reacted and did everything right. So that was last year, you said, right? Yeah, that was, yep, last year in, I believe, early July last year, yeah. Okay, uh, I think I might have heard about that. I didn't yeah. know that that was you, uh, but that's very interesting. Was, now, actually, it was a bad week for 600. There was, um, within that week, or like, I think it was a couple of weeks, there was three 600s that crashed. There okay. was one from another operator here in the United States that crashed in California and burned, and the pilot got out and just kicked the window actually out. And um, then there was the one that I was flying, and there was another one in South Africa. There was three six hundred in that week that crashed. Okay, yeah. So I'm actually familiar with yeah. the one in California, then the one that was caught on fire. So I guess different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to the six hundred yeah. real fast for our listeners out there that are maybe not familiar uh, with that airframe. That that is the aircraft with the NOTAR, so it doesn't have your traditional tail rotor. Yeah. Uh, what is what is that yep. like flying? I've always kind of wondered if if I've hear like people don't like it, but I've never actually talked firsthand. It's very spongy on the pedals. You need a lot of pedal um, to make it do what you want to do. But then it works. I mean, after flying it for ten minutes, like it, you just fly it. You don't think about it. Um, but you need a lot of pedal compared to a tail rotor. It's a lot less responsive, but um, it works actually pretty good. Like believe it or not, like the six hundred, I would say like. Um, Compared to the 500, and I have a lot of time in, in 500s, like they don't really care which way the wind is coming from. To a certain point, you get some, some LTE um, with the 500. With the 600, it's a lot more um, vulnerable to, to any kind of crosswinds um, because I think you just have less authority. Plus, you have a big old tail boom there with those big uh, vertical stabilizers that um, just just act like a big sail. So, um Overall, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's pretty spongy, but, but after 10, 15 minutes of flying it, you just fly it. You don't think about it. Just fly a helicopter. Yeah, it's kind of how it was. I remember getting into, like, the Fenestrum of the EC-130. It just, it was, the throw was just a little bit different, you know, compared to, like, you know, uh, a Robinson or something else I had flown before, whereas, like, hey, this is kind of spongy, I think, is a great way to put it, actually. Uh, but yeah, you know, 10 minutes later, yeah. it's like, hey, it's not that big of a deal. That's interesting. I, I no. think that the Notar, I remember as like a little kid seeing the Notar, and I was like, that is the coolest thing in the world. Like, and it's, it's my <laughs> understanding as well, right? Like, doesn't it actually draw some of its tail rotor <clears throat> thrust from the downwash of the main rotor? There's like slits on the tail yep. cone, uh, the tail boom, and it's using uh what what force what force are we using here i'm, I'm blanking uh but it's like the acceleration you know of the curved the winds you know deflecting down so is that that is true yeah. <clears throat> yeah you have a strike on one side and then you have um slats on the other side where air is actually coming out of the tail boom now the tail boom has a fan like basically right at the fuselage there's a fan that blows air through the tail boom and then um so there's a lot of air coming out through those slats um 
on on the tail boom along the side, and I think they are on the right side of the aircraft, and the strake is on the left side. And then um, you obviously have the thruster cone in the back, so that cone that basically turns whichever way you want to um, um, have the air blow out, and there's like a lot of air actually coming out the back side there um, of that of that tail boom. And so I have to kind of segue into this a little bit. It has nothing to do with helicopters, but maybe I can try to tie it in here, and I just want to talk about it because I've told you before I'm just oddly obsessed with it because it terrifies me. But one of your hobbies, I don't know if it still is, but do you still jump off things for enjoyment? High objects? <laughs> no, I haven't done any base jumps in probably 10, 11 years now. Really? I still did a little bit of jumping when I when I started flight school, but um, I never really intended to stop base jumping because I was obviously doing it like really intensely. I had a, had a sponsorship from a big manufacturer of an energy drink for four years, and um, so I had a good time <laughs> doing it for sure. But um, I, I was um, then I guess just priority shifted, and I never really thought about it, and and. Um, so no, I haven't really done any any base jumps in, in a long time. It's not that I would say like I would never do it again, but it's just like like I, I've I've done it so much where I say like I don't need to do it every day to like just have it done. Like it's just there's other sure. things in life that are more important to me now. Yeah. Do you uh, do you think though that you know? I mean, I'm sure within base jumping, everything has to happen extremely fast, right? I mean, like you're obviously jumping off. Oh, yeah something and you're going very very fast so if things are going wrong then your time to react is probably very slim do you think that that's helped you within the helicopter world specifically with this md600 accident that you're in uh or is it just kind of too is that am i stretching too far here um i don't know like with a 600 accident i i would say there was probably not really much of a relationship I would say what the skydiving and, and the base jumping background that I had since I was 16 years old um, um, definitely helped me during my flight training in a way of, of knowing what, like, I mean, skydiving or base jumping, you obviously, like, fall or you fly your own body. So just, like, knowing that it, it sounds weird for somebody who can't maybe relate to it, but, like, knowing what air feels like and, like, how to fly your body definitely, I would say, like, helped me. Um, and somebody else might totally disagree, but it, it definitely helped me to to understand like how the helicopter would react and, and behave in the air, and um, how to to just handle the machine there, you know, from just an operator's perspective. Um, like for for anything else down the road, I maybe I don't know. I mean, like that'd be an interesting question to like really. Like you might have some researchers dig into it and yeah. like get all crazy about it, but <laughs> get all scientific. <laughs> but um, I, I I don't know if they would or not. I just always yeah. remember back in the day, like you told me that you yeah that you were uh, sponsored and you were sponsored to jump off things, and I was like, yeah, that guy's insane. What what's the highest? We're gonna get back yeah. to helicopters, I promise. But what, for our listeners, because I'm into it, what's like the highest object that sure. you've ever jumped off? The highest object. Um, I've jumped off some 5,000-foot cliffs in Norway, um, in northern Norway. There's some, some really tall cliffs. Um, I've jumped in a cave in central China that's 2,200 feet deep. Um, I jumped off the Petrona Twin Towers in Malaysia while they were still the highest buildings in the world. Um, there's definitely some cool stuff, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so, I mean, like, I'm sweating just talking about it. So I skydived one time uh, when I'm on my 24th <laughs> birthday, and yeah. – 
I hardly remember because it, it happened so fast. Nice. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know if yeah. others can relate out there. But I personally actually kind of have a fear <clears> of heights, and I tell people that. People are like, "That's really weird." Like, you're a helicopter pilot. Have do you ever experience any of that? I mean, right. are, are you just really comfortable with heights? Like, no. does it still did, did I'm, jumping I'm off super things comfortable with heights, scare you? It, um, I wouldn't say it scared me. I definitely there's respect. There's respect for for um, the object that you jump off, because um, like if your parachute opens the wrong way, that object is in the way, and you will hit it if you don't do the right thing <laughs> quick. Um, and um, so there's definitely respect. Um, I wouldn't say I was scared. I trusted my my equipment, and that's the same with helicopters. You just you got to trust your equipment. And um, in the moment you don't, if you if you if you can't trust your equipment, then you you shouldn't use it. And um, at the same time, you gotta I think have a healthy uh, relationship between yourself and your skills, like meaning in a way like so. This is what I'm planning to do. This is my mission or whatever you want to call it. This is my skill level. Does that match? Does my skill level meet the the or is that big enough? My skill level and is that good enough to to, to meet the requirements for this mission and, and this, this task that I'm about to do. Can I do this or not? And um, that's just something that, that nobody else can answer for yourself but you. So um, if, if you get to a point where you think about that you might not have the required skill, you probably don't. Um, so it's, it's just really about being honest with yourself I've always said like uh, in any time with helicopters, like if there's a doubt, then there's no doubt that you should probably listen to what your body's telling you. So if you're if you're doubting yeah. like, hey, can I do this? Then there's no doubt that you probably can't do it and you should probably do something to mitigate that risk. Uh, I used to kind of drive that yeah. home with my students back in the day. It's like if you're doubting something, it's because – your brain is trying to tell you to do the right thing and you got to listen to that brain. Now, I mean, there's some times where, you know, your brain might be a little overreactive, specifically if you're more of an excited person or whatnot. But, you know, I think that's also, I mean, man, Yo-Yo, you're full of them today. You're talking about, you know, learning every day and going in there and understanding your skill level. I mean, this is awesome stuff. And, and if for our listeners out there that are, are not as experienced or just getting into it. I really hope that you're hearing this because this is incredible stuff. A guy that has a lot of experience doing a lot of cool things. Now I do see a K Max in the background there. Uh, do you have experience in that oh, airframe? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got like a thousand eleven hundred hours in the K Max. Wow. They're fun aircraft, weird aircraft to fly. Like it doesn't fly like a helicopter, it doesn't fly like an airplane, it flies like a K Max. That's the only way to say it. <laughs> And um, <laughs> and it's it's interesting. The first time you get in the KMX is obviously a one seat helicopter. Like you you do some training, and I was fortunate enough to do the training at the factory in Connecticut, and still fly the Husky, <clears throat> which um, is obviously the predecessor to the KMX. And um, it's a two seater helicopter with the same rotor system, so that that um, intermeshing, uh, semi rigid uh, rotor system. And um, so there was there was somebody that could train me how to to fly that rotor system a little bit because for the first five, 10 minutes and that thing, I had no idea what was going on. Like I was flying this thing, but actually like the instructor was flying it. Like I had no, it was so weird. And um, because of just the way it flies and then, then it's just like you get used to it. And like similar with the Notar, like we talked about earlier, it's just, you start flying it and you just like, don't think about it and just fly it. And it's the same with the KMAX. And then also the KMAX, the first time you actually sit in it, it's like just fire up and go. Like there's nobody that can like take the controls for you. There's nobody that can help you. It's just you. And like, 
And then I was just told, yeah, just get up to 50, 60 feet and figure it out up there. There's less stuff to hit. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. so crazy. I mean, even watching those aircraft start, yeah. it's like, oh, they're gonna hit. The rotors are gonna hit. Oh, oh no, they didn't hit. Like it's it's like such a Man. crazy design. What I mean, I guess yeah. I guess you've explained it as it's not necessarily it flies like a helicopter or an airplane. But I mean, what what is it that's so weird about it? It's the way the rotor system works. So um, basically, like on every helicopter, you have um, obviously you have your rotary swash plate that basically translates every movement and basically um, does what the rotor disc does, right? So like you tilt it forward, like your rotor disc does, uh, tilts forward. On the KMAC, it doesn't have that. You have what's called an azimuth that's basically underneath the transmission. You have two, if you want to call it swash plates. Um, but then basically there's push-pull rods that go through the transmission, through the mast, through the heads, into the blades. And then, um, I don't know if you can see it in that picture, you might not, but otherwise just look up a picture of the KMAX online. You'll see there's flaps on the blades. Yep. And those flaps are actually what's controlling the, the blades. And the blades are fixed to the hub. They can lead lag, and they can, obviously the whole head can, can um, um, uh, what do you call it, tilt. Um, but, so the blades cannot um, change the angle of attack or the pitch angle on the hub, so they're fixed. What happens, the blades are made out of wood, so the spar is made out of wood, actually, and then the outside is composite, and um, so the blades flex. So those flaps actually control the blades and, and basically it's like make the blades twist, fly up, down, whichever way the, the, the blade needs to fly um, at that point. So just the controlling of um, the rotodisc happens outside on the blade versus on the inside of the blade, so it's, it's way different. And... Um, then, then that rotor system itself, I mean, obviously the rotor discs are counter-rotating, so they, they cancel each other's torques out. You don't have a tail rotor. And um, it's it's just way different. I, I don't really know how to describe it um, any other than, than what I just did. Is it is it a responsive aircraft or because you're because yes. essentially these flaps are are on you know controlling it a little bit differently than say we're used to with the traditional swashplate and just that uh, almost immediate action is there a lag or is it still a very responsive aircraft? That, that's an interesting question. No, generally it's a very responsive aircraft, but um, so there's there's more weirdness to the KMAX, right? So. You have um, what's called the, the dwelling zone. There's this big mixer unit underneath the seat, and what it actually, one of the functions, what it does, like it takes your flight control inputs um, from the cyclical collective in your pedals, and um, then moves them back through the um, uh, transmission up to the rotor uh, discs. And um, so, what it, one of the functions it does, it reverses your pedals at a low con uh, collective setting, and um, that's called the dwell zone. So um, the reason for that is, is simply, I mean, because everything is controlled on the on those flaps, which are on the outboard side of the blades. Um, like if you have your collective full down, you're auto rotating most likely, right? So um, instead of basically the air being pushed from the top to bottom through the rotor disc, it's going the other way, which means the flaps would react the opposite way, if that makes sense. So on your pedals, your pedals actually sure. re reverse if your collective is full down. They they still do the same way. So if if you would do like step on the right pedal, the helicopter will still turn to the right um, and the left, but, but they're actually opposite. So if you just go up, up a little bit on the collective, there's this point, this point where you're right in the middle of this dwell zone, what they call it, and the pedals are actually completely disengaged. And um, wow. so 
this is really weird and it's usually like right i mean i was logging a lot with the kmax that's probably the most i did some power line construction and some 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 firefighting with the kmax but for the most part logging it's a fantastic aircraft for logging i mean that's that's what it was built for and um so there's there's like usually whenever like you bring your hook to the hookers they they like put put the chokers in the hook and um that's right around that spot where where your pedals are like almost not functioning so it's it's really weird and it just a little bit takes a little bit to get used to flying it but yeah it's it's the craziest aircraft That's like really when you cool. get up close to one if you see one i I'd, I'd highly recommend like taking half an hour and bugging the pilot whoever is there say like hey can i check this out check out this aircraft and just look at it it's it's an amazing design like it's really cool yeah, I remember back uh, working line service back in the days. One landed at Hillsboro, and it was just like it was so cool. He was there for a couple of days, and it was so fun to like yeah. watch him start up and take off and just like see it. Um, I'll go, I'll go crazy conspiracy for a sec, but that's just an example to me. Like there has to be aliens. <laughs> like come on, like who who comes up with these uh, these designs <laughs> to build these things? It's insane to me. Like I've always thought about the helicopter. I mean, even the most basic function. You know, just like call it a jet ranger. You know, like you're flying around in a machine. It's like PFM to me, pure freaking magic. And then you get to the complexity of a <laughs> of an airframe like the K Max, and it's just like, I'm really glad that there's smart people out there that can figure this stuff out because it sure makes it a lot of fun right? for a pilot. It's just it's so cool. Yeah. And they're an impressive aircraft, right? Lifting capacity. What what was your? Uh, how much could you lift weight wise? Six thousand pounds, and you can actually lift that um, all day long, really, and um, even at altitude. And that's that's the amazing thing. I mean, you just have the T fifty three engine, the same engine like the Huey has, um, the Dash seventeen A, or the Huey uses the seven hundred three, which is the same engine. Um, but it's um, like for six thousand pounds, because like every bit of of um, lift is being created, it's, it's being put into vertical lift. There's no anti torque and terror, where you obviously lose a lot of power um, on any other helicopter. Um, no, the lifting capacity of that aircraft is, is amazing. And I mean, it weighs empty like 5,300 and some change. So it actually lifts more than its own weight. That's that's pretty impressive, I think. Golly. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I, I'm i really glad that we tangented off to the K-Max because I don't know how many. I don't think I know many <laughs> K-Max operators. So it's cool that uh, I'm glad that I saw that picture back there. What's the, what's the tail rotor from back there? Oh, that's tail rotor. That's from a 500. That's a, a 500. I can tilt the computer a little bit. That's a 500 tail rotor that I was flying. Um, like all blades and parts came from different helicopters, but um, so I pieced it together. I got the hub that was timed out at some point, and I got the blades, and then I got a second blade, and now I got a tail rotor. Now I need a fork to to mount it on on some sort of motor and do like a cool fan or something out of it. That would be cool. I used to have a uh, yeah, an R22 yeah. tail boom. And I always wanted to like, I cut it that down house, and turn yeah. it in. Oh yeah, I wanted to turn it into like a lamp. I never did. I just it sat in the corner, and then I think I sold it to someone, like you know, like as a decor piece, oh, nice. you know, yeah. when I moved. But yeah. all right, so uh, you've you've flown utility. You had all, you've flown the K Max, obviously, uh, all this utility experience. But it brings you now to where you're at now. You're a chief pilot. First and foremost, congratulations. I mean, that's really cool. How did you, how did you work your way into that position? Is this, uh, you had worked for the company as not a chief pilot or was this just an open position? How did you stumble upon that? So mountain power construction, like they, um, their office is about 20 minutes, 25 minutes from my house up here in Northern Idaho. And, um, so I, um, heard about them. They, they had, they bought that 600 before, 
and um, they had somebody else fly it under a different certificate and nothing really worked out. And um, then at some point I just stopped by the office and, and started talking with, with um, the owners and said like, hey, I live here and maybe we can make something work out. And at some point, like we started talking more and um, they were really getting into, um, into the aviation program more and more. And uh, so they, they just started MP Aviation, they brought me on board and um, then um, we, we said like, okay, we need to get our 133 and our 137 certificates. And so we applied for those and and um, got those from the FAA. And um, so there was a lot of paperwork. And so I, I've never been in, in a chief pilot or any, any kind of management position before. So it was a huge learning curve for me. Um, to to deal with that side of the of the whole game so to speak and um then dealing with the faa and luckily our poi here is, is super super nice dude um really helpful really good guy uh, which helped out a lot i mean not all of them are like that unfortunately but no our guy here he's he's awesome and um he helped out a lot and then <clears throat> i just like talking to to friends other people in the industry um that's like i knew they they started their company and they said like hey when I called him up, I said, hey, how did you do this? How did you do that? And just like, do you mind helping out a little bit here? Just like providing some knowledge and people were more than happy to. And um, then we get, like I said, we got our 133 and 137 certificates. And um, then we added the Blackhawk to it, um, which which um, I, I've flown the Blackhawk for a while before, obviously, and um, um, did a, like some logging with it, some um, firefighting, some construction with it. And um, then we said, like, no, the, the Blackhawk would be an awesome platform for us to operate. Um, <clears throat> and then again, the, the, the background of mountain power construction was to, to buy helicopters to do our in-house power line work with it. Because as, especially in the summertime, when everybody's out fighting fires, it's next to impossible to get a heavy lift helicopter to set some poles because everybody's out fighting fires. And um, so so we said, like, no, let's, let's do that step and let's get these helicopters, which we did. And... Um, so it it worked out awesome for us, and um, yeah, here we are. And then, like I said, last year we 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 stood together and we thought about it for a little bit to um, like what else could we do with a Blackhawk? And I said like, well, like if we don't need it for any of our construction jobs, if there's no work for it, like for our in-house work, there's a potential, um, a very big potential to make a lot of money outside with it. And um, so we we then said like, okay, let's see how we can get contracts with the Forest Service and with um, state agencies for firefighting. And so I, I figured that out again, like it was just kind of jumping in the cold water and just like figure it out, call people and say like, hey, how can we make this happen? And um, and I got the got us a contract with Cal Fire and um, got the aircraft carded and <clears throat> got our fuel truck carded with Cal Fire. And um, then we were out firefighting for two and a half months last year with it. And I love that. I mean, I think that's a mentality that uh, helicopter pilots should listen to. But anyone, if you're out there and you're an entrepreneur or you want to do something, just go do it. I mean, like, I love the fact that, like, you know, you probably felt very overwhelmed at times. I can only imagine for our listeners out there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Yo-Yo, but and what I believe in 2015, the U.S. Army released a certain number of, at that time, I think what the UH-60 Alpha models uh, for like GSA yep. auction and they, a lot of them yep. got scooped up and, and over the past, you know, five, six years, they've been retrofitted into firefighting and other, you know, utility missions. 
I can't imagine just that process. I mean, was that really a complex process to get? Uh, I mean, did you guys just essentially buy an airframe that hadn't has? Did it have any type of you know restricted category to it or anything like any type of airworthiness or not? Nope. 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 You you buy and, and then I was lucky enough to work for a company at that time that um, was basically one of the first companies in the civilian world to operate Blackhawks. And like you said in the very beginning, like. 10 years ago, like I was like drooling over a Blackhawk that landed at Salem Airport or 12 years ago, whenever it was like when I was in my flight training, there was a Blackhawk that landed there from the National Guard and I was drooling all over it. And, like never in my like wildest dreams would have imagined like to ever be able to fly one of those aircraft. And um, then um, about five years ago, I worked for a company. They, they were one of the first ones in the civilian world to fly Blackhawks. And um, I was like, holy cow, like we're flying Blackhawks. This is, this is the real deal. And like you said, those were just like early alpha model Blackhawks that were just um, sold off through what's called the BEST program, which the Army has to, and I forgot what BEST is, like the Blackhawk Exchange, uh, um, whatever it stands for, it's, it's, an, it's an acronym. But it's basically the program where the Army sells yeah, the Blackhawks. Yeah, I'm not sure actually and, myself. And it's, it's just, just on, on GSA options and... Um, so, um, yeah, you buy, just to answer your question, you just buy a green Blackhawk, like it's coming from the Army. I mean, obviously, it's been, been demilitarized, like so all the sensitive radios, um, trackers and whatnot are taken out, weapon systems, unfortunately, right? <laughs> but um, um, so you, you buy a green aircraft that has no registration on a civilian world whatsoever, and um, <laughs> then, then, then the fun starts. And... Um, so you gotta gotta get a type certificated, and um, you gotta get it converted to the civilian um, standards to be able to operate it. And um, it takes, depending on how much you want to put into it, like how much dewiring you want to do. Um, but I would say probably in a neighborhood of like um, five, six thousand man hours easy of work that you gotta put into one of those airframes until you you can actually fly it. You might be able to get away I mean, with less, significantly less, but it, yes. Oh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it doesn't look like it, but there's, there's like so many components. I mean, like there's two engines in there. There's a big transmission in there with two input mods. They have the accessory mods with generators, hydraulic pumps. The hydraulic system actually, it's, it's a very, very complex system on that aircraft. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work and there's tons and tons of wires in there that's, um, you just don't need in the civilian world. You just like lighten the aircraft up, and there's probably like a thousand plus pounds of excess wires and avionics that you just like get out and you just like haul it out to the dump, like one load at a time. Um, just stuff that you don't need. It's just extra weight. And then, I mean, in the civilian world, it's just like um, get the aircraft as light as possible to have it um, able to carry as much weight as possible. I mean, and it makes sense too from an operator standpoint. I mean, it's a ton of time, and congratulations for getting it through. I mean, I, I actually I have a little bit of personal knowledge on the process itself, and I, I mean, it's that's insane just to to get it green and to flying yeah. it and making money on it. I mean, that's a huge feat. So congratulations on that. Um, but you know, it makes sense from operator standpoint because you can go to Sikorsky and buy one brand new for like twenty plus million. Or you get one at auction or mm -hmm. you buy one that's, you know, was bought at auction used. You have to invest the time and certainly a lot of money as well to get it to where you need to. Yes. But in the long run, it's not going to surpass what a new, uh, you know, airframe would cost. So, I mean, from a from an operation yeah. standpoint, I mean, I, I feel like the Blackhawk is just scratching the surface. I mean, I think that that's going to be a if, yes. if not already 
I mean, do you think that it's already making a huge impact, uh, like in the civilian side? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, if you look at it, like you just said, I mean, you can buy an S70 from Sikorsky for like 20 some million dollars and um, or you buy a surplus Blackhawk for anywhere between like one and two million dollars. And then you have to put, like I said, a ton of work in it, probably another like one, two, maybe three million dollars into it to, to get it flying. But um, bottom line, yes, you're significant off significantly cheaper but the thing is that's not the the, the only part i mean like then for a blackout gear to think like you gotta have two pilots um you gotta have a mechanic and a fuel truck driver so there's four people just to keep that thing flying right so everybody wants to be on an even break schedule so you double those people so it's eight people just to keep one aircraft flying so um then then coming from a company's perspective so you you have like a gigantic expense in the payroll um which which all of a sudden happens so it's not like oh let's go buy a blackhawk like there's there's actually a lot more to it and then then you got to have work for it it's it's um i mean you need to have storage i mean we're talking about an aircraft that's a 22,000 pound aircraft which which has a, a pretty significant footprint just to put it in a hangar because you don't want to leave it sitting outside um um so it's it's um there's there's a lot of things that come with it so it's it's not really like and i've seen companies actually like oh yeah let's go buy a blackhawk and it's intimidating and last summer i mean like we had we had our blackhawk flying we had our 530 flying and we subcontracted two other 500s and a huey at some point so it's very intimidating to say like okay we're so busy let's buy another blackhawk let's get it going and um so let's let's expand the fleet but then like you have the winter coming and then for that moment yeah it sounds like a good idea but overall like like i, I said to us like they no 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 like let's keep the ball flat here and like let's just like do one step at a time again and um get this this foundation that we're just basically getting for ourselves so let's get let's get this nice and stable and let's figure out what we're doing as a company and then um once we're ready for it like in a couple of years maybe if not then so what who cares but like in a couple of years maybe then let's talk about expanding but before then like let's 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 keep it the way we are and um keep with, with one flying black we just bought a second one for parts because um, that's the thing also with Blackhawks, you need um, parts. And um, for for 500, you can go to Seaside Helicopters or to Helimart and you just like buy parts. It's no problem. You can get them from MD. Um, and you get them shipped overnight next day, no problem. Um, for the Blackhawk, some parts you can, some other parts you can't. So you basically got to be your own parts supplier at the same time. So um, um, we, we just bought a second Blackhawk just for parts and then... Um, we were lucky ours had the big and the second one that we bought we bought it with a big engine so the 701 delta engines that we were sticking in ours and um and um yeah that's just i mean it's, it's a complete different world going from from small helicopters or even medium lift helicopters like a huey um to a blackhawk it's it's not one step it's 10 steps you got to take to to make that make that happen it's it's a logistical i wouldn't say nightmare but it's um yeah, there's definitely a bit involved. Yeah, <laughs> I would say it's a, it, I, I would say it's it's quite a nightmare from kind of my knowledge. And I'm glad that you have a good POI. If if you're out there and you don't know what a POI is, that's a principal operations inspector. That's essentially the representative from the FAA that is working with you through your process. You have a POI on the. Yes, I guess I, I guess I would say it on mm -hmm. the operation side is the POI and the POM. Right? There's a uh, principal operations. On the maintenance side, is it called a POM? The maintenance inspector. Yep. 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 Um, 
So I'm glad that you DPM. Whatever. So yeah. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you have a good POI now. They will change it on you, just so you know. Yes. Uh, s- several times. <laughs> Probably, like, but as soon- yeah, yeah. But we gotta ride that train <laughs> as long as we can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, Yo Yo, I am so excited to hear about what you're doing, and I'm I'm excited that you spent the time. I don't think I think we just scratched the surface here. I think that I would love to have you back on in the very near future to talk sure. more about That'd kind of fun, the Blackhawk yeah. and and that whole process. We've kind of reached our limit for today, uh, so thank you so much. Um, I'm glad that you're okay. Hey, yeah. thank, thank you, you for, for sharing me. the accident, and uh, and thank you for your your wisdom, dude. Like. I just remember this long-haired yeah. dude that used to jump off radio towers in Portland, <laughs> you know, and, and and here you are having some really uh, strong wisdoms uh, coming coming from you today, and and I hope that uh, our listeners yeah. really listen and take this uh, take this episode. I mean, it's it's fun to listen to, but you really spread a, good, a lot of good knowledge yeah. out there. So thank you, uh, Yo Yo. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to mention with with your company or anything like that? It's MP Aviation, correct? MP Aviation is um, our aviation company, yes, and then um, Mountain Power Construction is kind of the parent company, and then um, our aviation company is just MP Aviation. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, thanks for having me. I, and- I was, it was fun. I appreciate you having me, and um, then, um, yeah, let's do it again, and um, and then I'll tell you about that um, ECU failure. I had, i tell you about that ECU failure I had in the Blackhawk um, a couple of years ago on a fire, so um, there's, there's another yep, I'm I a little wanna, scare. I- um, yeah, yeah. Let's do it all for good. sure. We'll definitely get something yeah. on the books. It, and that's what yeah. it's all about, my friend. Well, thank you again so much. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to the yeah. Helicopter Podcast. You can check us out on, on Facebook, like our page, go to YouTube as well. Uh, check out our videos, like, share. This is just to bring value to the industry. So I hope that you, uh, our listeners are enjoying it. And I am so lucky to have people like Yo-Yo on. So Yo-Yo, thank you so much. And everyone, thank, thank you. you for listening. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to 1-855-735-5226. And a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done.